Another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream and you can holler. Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world and the changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate, it is almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas, from my personal mobile studio, my 2006 Jetta Diesel TDI. And if I sound jovial today, it's because yesterday afternoon I saw the sun and I didn't see it for like a half an hour or 45 minutes I saw it from about three o'clock until it went down and right now even though there's clouds in the sky I'm seeing the sun breaking through and after about three weeks of this awful global warming that's kept temperatures about 15 degrees below what it should be for May in Texas um, I'm happy to see the sun and my plants are happy to see the sun and uh, uh, it just makes you feel good when the sun shines down uh, and actually warms your skin. So that's why I'm in a really good mood today. Uh, coupled with another thing, this is almost a landmark show today. This is episode 199 of the Survival Podcast, meaning that tomorrow will be our bicentennial episode, episode 200. 200 times we will have either sat in my little home office about, I guess, five or six times, and the other times we've cruised down the road together and discussed the future, one man's view of the changing world. And we've formed relationships and we've built a community. And we're less than a year old, and over 6,000 people a day now are listening to the Survival Podcast. And I get emails every day saying it's changing people's lives, which is really more than I could have ever dreamed of when I first launched the show. I, I wanted to get to maybe a thousand listeners. That was my goal. I thought maybe we'd double that over a little bit longer and, and maybe I'd end up with two or three thousand people listening to the show. We're at six, growing every day. New opportunities to continue to grow and reach out, popping up everywhere. And it is all because of you, the listener. From the very beginning, this has not been my show. It's been our show. It will continue to be that. So I just wanted to say that today on the eve of episode 200. Uh, Let's go ahead and knock out some house cleaning today. Uh, Number one, if you think that uh, you get more than 25 cents in value from the Survival Podcast each episode, uh, consider joining the Member Support Brigade at $5 a month or $50 a year, and your contribution will help support the show, the work that we're doing here, and you'll get exclusive content only available to members. Check out our advertiser of the day and our other advertisers there in the right-hand margin at the survivalpodcast.com advertiser of the day John Willis, SOE Tactical Gear he has been wonderful to the show and been supporting us like crazy long, long ago when we only had a few hundred listeners, he was already supporting us with donations of equipment that we've given away to the audience so uh, check him out, reach it five bug out, camp out, get 
get-together. If you haven't made plans to be there, make plans soon, because it's going to be very soon. At the end of the month, we'll be down there hanging out, eating some barbecue, slapping some lead down range, and uh, just meeting some other people and encouraging uh, our members to form more community between each other. And uh, we'll go ahead and wrap up the house cleaning there today so we can get into today's subject. And today's subject is going to be rain, water harvesting, and water conservation. And before I go into this subject, I want to uh, to reinforce something that I always try to let people know, and I always try to explain to people whenever we get into these subjects that are kind of the eco-freak world, the people that are going to save the manatees, the polar bears, and the whales all at the same time by reducing their mythical carbon footprints. And uh, I'm going to run a listener appreciation contest today in a strange different way, and uh, you don't even have to have entered. I want maximum participation on this one. If you can send me today by an email the percentage of the Earth's atmosphere that is actually CO2, the actual percentage of the Earth's atmosphere that is actually CO2, by an email. I've got some stuff here from uh, John Willis from SOE Tactical Gear, some extra stuff I never gave out. I'm going to give whatever it is that I have in my little pile back at home all to the, the, uh, the third person to get that percentage right today. No announcement, nothing in the show notes, only listeners know about this. Again, you have to send an email to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with the actual percentage of the Earth's atmosphere that is CO2 uh, for this mythical carbon footprint. Anyway, why am I talking about this? Because I want to start making a case for you, even if you are an eco-freak, even if you are a true believer, I want you to be successful. Because my mission is to change the way that people are living to make them more self-sufficient. And I do that by telling them how to do things in a way that are more cost-effective, more efficient, and over the long term easier to do. Okay? And if you do that, and you do that in a way that reduces your dependence on somebody else or some other system, you become more self-sufficient. From a standpoint, financially, you're spending less money. From a standpoint, in most of these situations, you're producing something for yourself, so you're less dependent on the system that you're using to get the things you weren't producing for yourself in the future. And because it's easier, you're more likely to keep doing it. And since you keep doing it, you become redundantly self-sufficient. In other words, it continues to cycle. So what the hell does that have to do with eco-freaks and saving the environment? Your message, your message, that because I drink half my glass of water and dump it in the sink, I'm killing the planet, is dumb. No one's listening to you. If you want people to start conserving water and you are an eco-freak, take some of the things that I'm going to give you today, start making that your marketing, stop telling people about their carbon footprint and calling them whale killers, and you might get somewhere. So what am I talking about here? I'm talking about making sure that when rain falls on your property, you keep as much of it and use as much of it as possible for the plants that grow on your property, or it's being saved for other uses such as drinking water with purification, obviously, bathing water, or maybe even for flushing toilets if you happen to have an outage of your main water supply. And that's going to actually result in 
a huge savings of water that won't be wasted. But it's the byproduct, and I actually believe that the message that if you do these things, you will have a more efficient household, you will have more money, you will be able to grow more food with less work, is a much stronger message than if you don't conserve water, we're all going to die, man. So that's where I'm going with this. So what I want to do is go through some methodologies for saving water, some of which you've probably heard of, some of which you may have never heard of, and one of which you probably know about, but don't think of it as a method of water harvesting. And uh, so let's just start off with uh, the one that everybody thinks of right away, and that's rain barrels. Simple rain barrels that you put around your home and you harvest water off the roof with. This is often a first step for people, and there's a clear reason why. It's pretty easy to do, and it's fairly inexpensive. Uh, you can go out and buy, you know, uh, basically just your big standard uh, water barrels and put them underneath the downspout and start collecting water in about 15 minutes of time and under $200 of investment you probably get two decent barrels and set up. If you wanted to really go low end with it as far as cost you can get a couple big garbage cans, uh, cut a hole in the top of them, fit a screen over it to keep the mosquitoes out, set those under some downspouts and you could probably set up uh, four 50 gallon cans for about 100 20 bucks, I guess, good heavy-duty rubber ones, maybe $200, and have 200 gallons of water. And the beauty of doing that versus one giant rain barrel that would hold maybe two, or a tank that would hold 200 gallons, is you can put it on four corners of your house, and uh, by doing that, you have water available all around your home. So that's why a lot of people do it as a first step, but I think there are some things that kind of get missed as opportunities with rain barrels. I think one is that everywhere you have a rain barrel and you have one of these downspouts, it's kind of ugly. And if you look at the way that most people that install gutters for a living do it, they tend to bring the downspouts down on the sides of the houses where most people don't really go very often and don't see them, and they try to hide them, and that's because a downspout is kind of ugly. They, they really are kind of ugly. So having a downspout coming down right on your back porch with a rain barrel right on your back porch may not be something that most people really want because you get this big, ugly-looking thing. But what if you could replace that big, ugly downspout with something beautiful that enhanced your landscape? Enter the rain chain. So I think it's something that we should start looking at in areas where we want to bring water down off a roof system and funnel it into either a containment system or even to the ground into maybe a raised bed that's growing a herb garden right off the side of the house, uh, taking a chain and bringing it down to the ground with a pile of rocks to diffuse the water. It's a much more efficient method than doing it with a downspout. The water actually comes down a lot slower. It's a lot more controlled. It's dispersed a lot cooler. And I found a cool video on making your own rain chains on YouTube. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I think one of the things that gets lost with chains, though, is and I couldn't find any videos of anybody doing this, but I've seen it like on HGTV or something like that. You can actually use chains to move water horizontally. What they call capillary action will actually cause the water to follow the chain over a fairly good uh, horizontal distance. So, that's a place where, let's say you wanted to get water from your roof over to, uh, let's say, a place that was, a, you know, I don't know, 10 feet away from the side of the house into some sort of containment system.
of a pipe going across there, a drain spout going across there is is, is something that's very uh, unattractive to say the least. But using a decorative chain, maybe even hanging some things from it, making it part of the uh, the artistic value of your home, will still get that water across there. It'll just look a lot better. Now, what can you use for a rain chain? There's beautiful ones that are you know uh, either made in or at least uh, inspired by the traditional Japanese rain chains. They're made out of copper. They end up with a patina and some of that green on them, they, and then still some shine. They look really cool. They're made really ornate. Or you can go down the hardware store and buy a piece of chain. Or this video, the lady was making them out of uh, binder rings or shower curtain rings. So they can really be anything. Uh, That'll, that'll work as a chain. that will transmit the water. So, again, it was just something I wanted to bring up and, and a different way of looking at things. The other thing I wanted to mention I think people miss as an opportunity with, uh, with rain gutters and rain barrels and, and any kind of system that actually harvests water from a roof is, well, what about your outbuildings? I don't think people sometimes realize even something small like a, uh, I don't know, a 6-foot by 8-foot little shed how much water that roof actually catches. And uh, very, very inexpensive uh, to buy enough rain gutter to put uh, a proper rain gutter around your outbuilding. You probably only need one downspout for one barrel. You could divide it up in two, again, just to create greater division of your, uh, of your stored water so that there's different locations where you can actually get to it and use it. But make sure you consider harvesting the rainwater off of your outbuildings and even your greenhouse. Uh, I did a show very early in the in the series where I talked about the green greenhouse and one of the ways to create a, a greenhouse that uh, that utilized green methodologies beyond just being you know a place to grow plants was well you got a roof on a greenhouse. Why don't you harvest the water, funnel it to a rain barrel, even a rain barrel with a with a, uh, a transfer conveyance system that's inside the greenhouse, sitting up on a table. And when you want to water, you go into the greenhouse, turn a uh, a hose bib that you mount in the bottom of that barrel. And and start watering your plants with the rainwater off the roof. Seems to make a lot of sense. So take that and use it elsewhere. And again, with rain chains, you may be able to take your outbuilding, use a chain to, uh, you know, in some decorative fashion, horizontally transport uh, some of your water. You could even put some sort of a, uh, a small vine-like crop that allow it to grow across that rain chain. It's still going to convey water very well. And uh, further push the storage unit uh, further out into your uh, your zones if you're doing permaculture, further out into zone one, maybe even to the edge of your zone two, so you have additional methods of irrigation that are closer to where you're going to use them. Even if you're not trying to conserve water, think about this. It's a hell of a lot easier to walk out into the central part of your garden, turn the hose bib that's on the bottom of a rainwater catchment system that has free water in it you didn't pay for, water your plants, fold up the little piece of hose you keep out there, stick it wherever you store it, then to drag a hose 100 feet from the side of your house across your lawn, worrying about rolling over other plants and things like that. So it's more efficient, it costs less money, it works better. This is the reason to practice these methods of water harvesting and water conservation. Again, if you don't care about saving the whales, it doesn't matter. It's still a better thing for you and for your ecosystem. I also think that at some point we really need to start thinking if we're going to do, especially if let's say you are, uh, you're the owner of an acre or more of land. 
and you really want to uh, to convert almost all of it into kind of a uh, a food based uh, maybe like a little mini food forest or or anything like that. You're going to need a lot of water to maybe start making the move from just using rain barrels to actually putting in underground storage tanks and taking your storage into the you know, a thousand or several thousand gallons uh, of water. I don't think it's actually that uh, expensive to do anymore. If you phone somebody up that does it professionally, that's the only thing they do. Uh, it's probably going to be very expensive. If you go out and find the tanks that you want, purchase them, hire local Billy Bob, who's probably pretty good with a backhoe to come in and bury your tanks for for you do a little bit of research you can get it done fairly inexpensively and it may really be worth doing especially if you live somewhere where you're dependent on city water and putting a well in it's not really practical or you may find that it's going to cost you a hell of a lot less money to put in a really good tank system that will catch just a tremendous amount of water and overflow than it will to put in a well and you might get just as much utility and efficiency out of it as long as you know you have some method of purification if you're going to be using it for drinking water but for irrigation purposes it's absolutely a phenomenal way to go now wells aren't bad if you live in florida uh, you can have a guy come in and drill a wall a well with water pressure put it down about 18 feet and uh, if you're near the sea it'll probably never run dry it'll it'll always work my grandfather did it uh, when he lived in the jacksonville florida area i think his well ended up being 16 feet and the guy drilled it uh, in a couple hours, again, using basically water pressure from a hose So because the soil was all sand. So it depends on where you live, whether or not it's going to be a better idea to put in tanks or drill a well or even do both. Uh, but having an underground tank system and a couple thousand gallons of water, not only for irrigation purposes but for survivalism, sure as hell makes a lot of sense. Now, the permaculturists, the professional permaculturists, to do the large-scale uh, stuff, several acres or more, are real fond of another methodology for conserving and harvesting water called the swale system. And a swale system intrigues me, and I want to see if I can uh, maybe put in at least one of them out of my bug-out location in Arkansas. And uh, when I go up there, and, and maybe I should let you all know, there will be no show Friday because I will be in Arkansas uh, working on my uh, bug-out location. And I won't be putting a swale in uh, this weekend, but I'm going to kind of survey the area and just see, based on runoff, uh, where I could put one. One of my concerns is the location of my property where I'd want to put a swale, and I want to make sure that I don't uh, create a, a flood danger for my house. So I may have to get some consultation in before I make a final decision on that. But the way what a swale basically is is a ditch, a ditch that's designed to catch and hold water. But it differs from a typical ditch. If you think about a typical ditch, it would be, let's say, along the side of a road. And it's pretty much in a straight line, and the only time it curves is if uh, the road curves. If you think of irrigation ditches in traditional agriculture, uh, they're straight line crops and they're straight line irrigation ditches. And all that water does is basically run through there and permeate into the ground, and uh, it all does it kind of uniformly uh, across the board, so to speak. And those ditches 
tend to fill up from uh, a little bit of runoff, but when they're used for crop irrigation, generally the only way to uh, make them effective is to pump water into them from somewhere else. Uh, that's uh, I mentioned uh, this week about the, uh, the, the, the man-made drought out in Southern California in the San Joaquin Valley, where because of this, uh, this, this delta smelt, this two-inch minnow, they shut the water off and these farms that are you know, three generations old are dying. These beautiful orchards are uh, going to the ground. Now, the reality is if those folks were practicing permaculture methodologies and swale systems, they would probably still have enough rainwater to uh, survive. Uh, Don't agree with the government what they've done there with flipping the switch. Uh, They should maybe, if they're going to turn that water supply off at times of the year, is give them time to to adjust because we're going to have food shortages from this, folks. Uh, Trust me. You're going to see, if nothing else, extreme increases in the price of California produce. Uh, this summer because there's going to be a shortage of it. So anyway, the swale, what is a swale and how does it differ from a, a ditch? Well, a swale follows the contour of the land. So if you think of any place where there's a slope, generally the slope isn't straight. The slope, if you looked at it from above, from a topographical map, the contour lines kind of weave in and out. And they make draws, and they make spurs, and they make valleys, and they make ridges. So if you build a, uh, on, on slope, you build a swale, you don't just go in a straight line straight across it. You follow the contour lines. So if you have a point on the slope where, let's Let's say your elevation at the top of a hill is 500 feet, and you come down the hill, and at the bottom of the hill, you're at uh, 475 feet elevation, pretty gradual slope. But somewhere in the middle, you decide, well, right at about 490 feet, I'm going to put a swale ditch. Instead of just picking kind of, okay, this spot's 490, go straight across the side, you stay at 490 feet as you follow it. And you follow the contour lines exactly. You put this ditch in, and on the downhill side of the ditch, you put a berm, a very friable, very absorbent earth where you plant crops and permanent uh, uh, crops in. And then what happens is as the ditch fills, that berm actually leaches water out of the ditch until it becomes saturated. Once that berm becomes saturated, the water begins to soak into the ground and flow downhill because that's where water goes with gravity. Instead of just running down the hill, it percolates into the ground. Well, something happens over time that's absolutely amazing. Sooner or later, you're going to get enough water buildup that that water is going to go down and hit a, a layer where the water just simply doesn't descend any deeper into the ground. It becomes uh, impermeable to the water. Or maybe the water can get through, but it does it at a very, very slow rate, far slower than it can flow through the earth horizontally. And then what will happen is somewhere down the hill, you'll actually start to have water weeping out of the ground. And eventually the entire side of that hill, all the way down to its weeping point and a little bit below, becomes saturated with water. This taken to the extreme, even on relatively flat land, enabled one of the pioneers of permaculture to create a 10-acre green oasis in the desert. Uh, I'm going to give a link in the show notes to, to a video called Greening the Desert on YouTube. You have to watch it. It's uh, from a man named Geoff Lawton, who is one of the fathers of permaculture, as far as I'm concerned anyway. Him and Bill Mollison and a few other folks, I think, get uniform credit for, for what's going on today with the movement and uh they took this, and it was salted earth. You can't grow in it. Nothing grows in it. Within six months, they had standing figs with figs on them. 
and they created this in 100% organic and utilized every drop of water from rain that happens because it does even rain even in the desert. Absolutely phenomenal, absolutely amazing what they did with the swale system. So it's something you maybe want to look at, uh, seeing if you can incorporate it. Now, to me, you're not going to put a swale system in a tenth of an acre in your backyard. It's just not probable. It's just not practical. But if you have a couple acres or more, it's especially if you have slope, it may be something you really want to look at. Again, it's something I'm going to be kind of doing like an initial survey uh, for the options that I have uh, this weekend. And if something cool comes up with that, I'll let you know about it. Now, I think another thing that gets overlooked by a lot of folks is ponds, uh, or a lot of times ponds are just used improperly. I want you to ask yourself, how many times have you seen a place where a guy has a couple acres of land and he's always wanted his own little pond? So way away from the house, out in the front yard or out in the backyard, in the middle of a great big huge field, completely surrounded by grass and no trees, he puts in his little quarter acre or tenth of an acre pond, or even maybe something a bit smaller than that, maybe even a twentieth of an acre, a couple hundred feet uh, of shoreline, you know, uh, something the size of a, a little bit bigger than the average swimming pool. He puts his pond in, and it sits out there, and it bakes in the sun. It deals with evaporation problems, and it doesn't really develop much of an ecosystem around it because it's surrounded by freaking grass. And in dry parts of the, the country, on dry times, the little pond starts to shrink and get smaller and smaller, and the shorelines get bigger and bigger, and you have this mud bank, and it looks awful, and it looks ugly, and it becomes a mosquito breeding ground. Or he has to treat it with chemicals and pumps and all these other things. And, of course, the last thing he can do with it is irrigate with it, because it's not located near anything he wants to irrigate other than grass, and because it's drying out so fast, if he starts pulling water out of it, he's not going to be able to uh, keep it full. How many times have you seen this, especially in places like Texas and all across the South? With these great big fields and people that fancy themselves, they want to feel like they're living on a little mini cattle ranch, even though the closest thing they have to a cow is a Labrador Retriever. That is not a good system if you want to be able to utilize the water in your pond to help from a standpoint of water harvesting, water conservation, and helping to grow more and more things in your, you know, in your design, in your systemic, systemic design of your home. Even if you're not pumping water out of the pond directly, a properly done pond will actually help your entire uh, ecology of your land. The way you really want to build upon is you actually build it surrounded by trees, surrounded by nature, right near your home if possible. If not near your home, near a part of your property that you spend a lot of time on and managing. If you look at the permaculture zones again, you know, you're looking at zone one, zone two, maybe zone three. And if you have a pond further out, that's okay, but if you're going to build your first pond, if there's any way, based on the way your land is done, you want to get it close to the home. You want to get it surrounded by plants. You want to get it surrounded by bushes. You want to get it surrounded by trees. Sometimes you can't have it surrounded by trees because you're going to deal with a situation where tree roots are going to go in and break your dam. So that's one of the reasons people keep a lot of the uh, the deep-rooting trees away from them. You can certainly plant shrubs and bushes, and you can certainly plant your herbaceous plants around there. And if you think about it, if you've ever been walking through the woods and found a natural pond in nature, it's always surrounded by things. 
And what you get when you do that with your pond, and you, you kind of make it like, like instead of instead of making it this island in the middle of a sea of grass, you make it a little oasis surrounded by a garden. You start to get all types of little uh, pond critters that would never go out there and bake in August in the middle of a field. Like frogs and toads. And what do they do? Well, they eat all the nasty little critters that want to eat your plants. So obviously you want your plants close to where these frogs and toads are. It opens up the ability to start growing uh, actually food crops that grow in water. Uh, I'm not really going to talk about that specifically today because it's too broad of a subject in its own. But there's a lot of different plants you can actually grow in your ponds. And if you have a pond in a place where it's given a reasonable amount of shade at different parts of the day, you know, you don't have over-excessive evaporation, and you can actually use some of the water from the pond for some irrigation purposes if you happen to need them. If you do all the other things we're talking about today, you probably won't, but it's there and it's available. And again, if nothing else, it is another source of water if we really get into kind of a shit-hit-the-fan scenario. It opens up things like, you know, keeping fish or maybe freshwater shrimp or all other little types of things. But the real beauty of a pond is what it brings to the entire ecology of your system, how it starts to bring in predators that will predate on the animals that consume your plants. And if your plants are under less stress, they don't need as much water. So it's a very holistic process to put in a pond. And it's something, that, you know, if it's possible where you are, something you should look at doing. Now that we've mentioned ponds and swales, I want to talk about two things that have recently uh, kind of come across. I've kind of come across. One is a concept called mini ponds. And... Uh, I'm going to post a link to a PDF from a place called Barking Frog Permaculture, and it's in Florida, and the PDF is called Forests in Permaculture. And I'm going to warn you before you read this PDF, I think it's like 18 pages or something like that, it sounds like, uh, I don't even know what to say about this thing, it's, it's, uh, It's not written very well, but yet it's genius. It it, it sounds almost like it was written in Egyptian hieroglyphics and then somebody translated it into modern English because it runs back and forth all over the place. Maybe it was a lecture that somebody transcribed. I don't know. I have no idea. But one of the things the guy talks about in there is within your your food forest, creating mini ponds. And he's calling these mini ponds, you know, four foot by eight foot. They can be anything from a buried stock tank to a clay line depression uh, to an old bathtub. And creating these ponds dotted throughout your, your ecosystem. Now, my worry is stagnation and what can be done about that. So I'm not sure. I'm going to do more research on this. But I did want to mention that. And it was more for what it does to the ecology, the frogs and things like that that I was talking about, but it certainly creates little micro-wet environments as well where different plants and different crops can grow adjacent or even in these ponds. And he does talk about, even if you're using a stock tank, putting dirt in the bottom of the pond, giving it a substrate uh, for the different ecological things that go on in a pond to happen there. Maybe that helps the stagnation. I'm I'm really leery about uh, creating a bunch of little puddles throughout my property, though, and I'm going to have to do more research on that. That said, I've always thought that if something works on a large scale, you should be able to first test it and use it on a small scale. So my thought was, can we put in micro-swales? 
put in little ditches around maybe one or two major trees that were trying to help out, heavily mulch the area on the uh, downward side of the swale, and uh, just create these little ditches instead of creating these little these little pockets, the little depression holes like craters that people put around trees and then uh, throw mulch in them and rot the bases of our trees, can we create on the uh, the uphill side of a tree a small depression, a little hill, grow some something on the side of that hill, maybe a climbing legume that actually goes up the tree, provides nitrogen for the tree, and use that as a micro version of the swale system. And it's something I'm going to look into where maybe can I test this in the next couple of weeks. And if I figure out how to do that, I'll make a video for the member support brigade of how we did it and what the results uh, will be. We could even, if it's, uh, let's say it doesn't rain because it's got to stop sooner or later after I do this, we could even test it with a garden hose, fill it up, and just see how long it holds water and how long it stays moist uh, for the tree and for the, the other side of the swale. So micro swales are something you may want to consider uh, as an option, and again, I'll see what I can do about uh, running a test case on that. It seems like something fairly easy to do and it's simply a, uh, a method of ground shaping, which is something we'll uh, go into a little bit more here in a second. Okay, now the next method of water harvesting I want to talk about is something I guarantee you you've heard of and you've probably never considered it a method of water harvesting. You, you've almost undoubtedly considered it as a method of water preservation or conservation, but probably never harvesting, and that's mulching. But mulching at a level that I don't think most people are familiar with. Most people think of mulching, you know, kind of this way. When it comes to uh, to mulch, what we do is we get our little bed where we have our vegetables or our flowers or ornamental plants or whatever it is, and within that bed we mulch. And everything outside that bed is concrete or wood as a deck or it is uh, grass. Now, what's the problem with concrete and wood? Well, the water never gets below them because it runs off. What's the problem with grass? Grass is not mulch. It has a mulching effect. There's a nice thick carpet of grass as it holds the water in from evaporating. But in a lawn, every square inch, every square centimeter of that lawn has a root system and it's taking water not really conserving water. And as soon as there's a deficiency of water, it starts to die and the mulching effect is lost. True mulch holds water in. It allows water to pass through it downward into the soil. But when I talk about mulching as a method of water harvest, I'm talking about you have two acres of land and just about every square inch of it in the end ends up mulched. You're growing a true food forest, uh, you know, your five zones, your seven layers of permaculture, everything's working. Every time you cut something down, it's going back down to the ground. Cut and drop, right? You, you grow something, it, it runs its course, or you need to prune it, you cut it, it goes straight to the ground. And eventually you end up with several inches or several, you know, some people end up with several feet of mulch deep, or at least a, maybe a foot of mulch deep, all across almost every square inch of the property, except for maybe some footpaths and things like that. Or even the footpaths are just mulch that's compacted. This is emulating the forest. If you walk into any forest, I don't care if it's winter or summer or spring or fall, 
even if there's leaves on the tree, there's a massive amount of leaf litter on the ground. You walk into a forest that's made up, you know, in North America here, of oaks and elms and maples, the, the leaf litter might be a foot deep. In the fall, when there's fresh leaf litter, I've seen it where the leaves are up to your knees where you're walking through the leaves. And then, of course, they begin to, uh, to, to break down, and by spring, you're back to you know, your 6, 8, 12 inches of leaf litter. If you pull those leaves aside, even in the driest time of the year, underneath them, you see the blackest, richest soil you've ever seen, and it's almost never dry. A forest landscape, true forest, with a good leaf litter layer, a good buildup of organic matter from the years and years of that leaf litter breaking down and becoming that topsoil layer. In in one foot of it, from the surface down 12 inches, there's an inch deep of solid water. I'll say that again. If you're, if you're, we want these people to listen while you're working. Pay attention to this. This one's important for you to grasp this concept. It'll change the way you think about how you manage land. It's very important you get this. One foot of earth, if you took it out, a couple square meters of it, and squeezed it, the same footprint that you took out a foot deep would be one inch deep in water during most parts of the year. The forest you can look at as a forest, an earth system, but what it really is is a one inch deep lake with things growing in it. So if you go to truly intensive mulching, you're not just conserving water, you're actually harvesting about an inch deep lake across the entire circumference of your property. Now think about that as opposed to something as inefficient that we started out with as a rain barrel. The water comes off your roof, runs down a chain or a spout, it goes into the barrel. Now you have to pump it or use gravity to get it where you want it, where if you intensively mulch everything. And maybe this isn't right for a lot of people in suburbia, especially if you plan to sell anytime soon. I mean, there's people like the Nervaises that mulch their entire front yard. Uh, but, you know, I can understand why a lot of people in suburbia are not willing yet to get rid of their lawns, especially if they plan on selling in the next couple of years. I'm not going to do it in suburbia. But I will never put a lawn in on my five acres in Arkansas. Never. Not even 100 feet by 100 feet for the dogs to run around. And they can run around in the woods. I may put in some little patches of uh, low-growth greenery like clover for the legume effect, but no lawn. Period. And uh, that's going to allow for that intensive mulching. And if you keep mulching long enough, weeds stop being a problem. You plant the trees that you're looking for, the, the plants that you're looking for, the bushes that you're looking for. You plant, 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 plant. And you let things go to seed and you keep replanting and you keep replanting. You keep making more with cuttings. You keep making more with harvested seed. You keep making more by breaking up root systems and replanting uh, the rhizomials. And you just keep planting. And if you plant enough of what you want and you mulch enough, sooner or later there's no room left for weeds and you don't have to water. And if you take some of these other irrigation methodologies that we talked about today and couple that with intensive mulching, you end up with a system that most of the time takes care of itself. I was listening to a video um, with Bill Mollison in it, and what he said was, digging causes work and work causes digging. Digging causes weeds, and weeds cause digging. It's a cycle. You have to break it. Stop 
digging, you'll stop having weed problems. Start mulching, you'll stop having weed problems. If you mulch enough, you'll create a bed you can go take a nap on in your garden while your wife thinks you're working. I'm paraphrasing. It's pretty close to what he said. But what stuck with me was digging causes work and work causes digging. In other words, you shouldn't be digging anything at all if you have the time and the location and a place where you can actually do a true food forest type system. Uh, very little to no digging at all. And if you're going to do any digging, you do it initially. And once you get kind of a bed set up, so to speak, you don't have to ever dig it again. You just keep mulching. And when you pull up a weed, you don't take it off to a compost pile. You lay it right down where it sits. Now let's uh, let's talk about something else here. Uh, basic ground shaping techniques. And that's simply maybe putting in a little berm here, a little ditch there, a little depression here, a little bit of a funnel there, maybe creating a natural slope in from the drip line of a tree canopy. There are all types of things that you can do to kind of direct water flow to where you want it, especially directing it to some place that's been heavily mulched so that it becomes then part of that mat, that wet mat absorbing and retaining the water instead of allowing it to run off. And one of the things I want to point out is that if you live in a place like Colorado and you don't have a water rights on your property, you can actually get fined for putting a rain barrel on the side of your house. And you may not be able to put a pond in. But a lot of little small ground shaping things that you can do in mulching, you're not going to have any problems with doing that because it's not considered water harvesting because people that are making these stupid rules that think they're helping us by not letting you have the water off your house don't understand them. So ground shaping is something you can really look at doing. Now, I just found something today. I don't know a lot about it yet, but it seems pretty cool. There was an ancient Indian tribe in the southwest United States called the Zuni. And the Zuni had a method of ground shaping that involved, they call it waffle gardening. Now, I'm sure the Zunis didn't call it waffle gardening because they would have had no flipping idea what the hell a waffle is. But the author from this article I linked to will, will call it um, waffle gardening. And it's what it looks like. It looks like a waffle grid. And they created this grid system with, uh, you know, like they didn't worry about, you know, quality earth for your grid system. It's just dirt. You know, cheap, useless dirt that didn't have any real nutrient value, and they built this grid system. In the center of the grids is where they would put the good organic matter and plant their crops. And in these grids, it would retain the water. And these grids were about two feet by two feet. And it looks to me, when I look at uh, this picture of this this uh, this tribe that's kept this this methodology alive, that's in the article, it looks like they're the inventors of square foot gardening, not Mel Bartholomew to me. Just in Instead of using uh, a raised bed system with a wood grid, they created the entire grid system out of the earth. It looks pretty cool, and I'll give you a link to it. Take a look at it. It might give you some ideas. Uh, I think it's given me some ideas. I don't know that I'll be going and putting a waffle grid in, but it's made me think about how to use the simple technique to maybe funnel water or retain water in specific areas where I think it could be most useful to the surrounding vegetation. And then the last thing 
thing I want to talk to you about is conveyance systems, how to get water from one point to another, and really think about ways that you can use the natural slope of the ground. One thing you might consider to do is possibly putting in a subterranean pipe or even just a, a, a gravel-based ditch. And the way you do a gravel ditch is you cut a trench, you fill it with gravel, and you overlay it with earth. And if you funnel, if you keep the one end of it open and you have the other end come out somewhere else and you run a downspout or a water chain to it, that water will flow underground through that gravel and come out the other end. You'll usually lose very little of it to the earth around you, especially if you have like a clay soil. And that can be funneled off to somewhere else using natural slope and come out to a point with a storage tank further away from your home, more out into your garden area. Uh, you could do it with an open ditch as well. Uh, you can. There's a lot of ways you can do that, but just start looking at the slope that goes away from your home. And you may not have enough slope to work with to do this, but if you do have a reasonable slope, start thinking, how can I get water from this, this massive catch system that is my roof and funnel it further out and get it closer to where I'm going to actually use it before I have to go back and start, you know, getting it out of there using a sump pump or using a hand pump or using gravity or using anything else. The further you can get the water or the closer you can get the water to where you actually plan on using it, the more useful and more efficient the system is. You might also start looking at how you can be more efficient with the water you harvest through things like drip irrigation. It would be relatively a simple task to set up a rain catch system with a couple rain barrels and coming out of the bottom of the lowest barrel, uh, have a drip irrigation system watering uh, even, let's say, the plants inside your greenhouse. So that all you have to do is walk in, turn the uh, drain cock, come back an hour later and turn it off, and you've watered everything in your greenhouse. And uh, with the humid environment in the greenhouse, you may only have to do that every couple days, or maybe every three or four days, who knows, depending on what you're growing and how warm it is and, and uh, how big the containers that you're growing are in. But it's just another example of use your mind. Remember always with survivalism and self-sufficiency and sustainability, your mind is the ultimate weapon. It is the thing that lets you analyze the situation. It lets you take the things that I've given you today and go, well, I can take these two and fit them together this way in my particular piece of property. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I live in a freaking desert. I don't get that much rain. I can't have a pond. But this swale thing, that'll work because if a guy could do it outside of Jerusalem you know, near the Dead Sea in a flat, salted earth, I can do that here in Arizona. So you take the pieces of these systems that work best for your area. You fit them together. You deal with the size of your property, how long you're going to be there, what you're willing to do, what you're not willing to do, what resources you have, what resources you don't have, and you make the best of what is available to you. And you adapt, you improvise, and you overcome. That's the way of the soldier. That's the way of the survivalist. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter. Spent.